This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. This is a special edition of Global Dialogue, our international affairs speakers program. I'm Patrick Ryan, founder and president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and welcome from my home along Printer's Alley in eerily quiet Music City, USA. Uh, before we start, let me welcome members of the World Affairs Councils joining from around the country. Uh, this event is part of the C by C, that's Council by Council Amplified, an ideas summit presented by World Affairs Councils nationwide with the theme of putting the world back together. Uh, this week, councils from around the US are working together to highlight the, the power of our network. We encourage everyone joining us today to support your local World Affairs Council and to enjoy as many of the great virtual programs that you can fit into your days and evenings this week. As for this World Affairs Council, we're contributing three webinars to the summit, including this special presentation. The summit is a great idea and I hope it becomes a regular event. Big hat tip to our friends at the Office of the World Affairs Councils of America in DC and at the Connecticut World Affairs Council. They all made the summit possible. We also welcome friends and colleagues of our panelists who may be getting their first taste of virtual Tennessee hospitality. Make sure you all come back. Last piece of housekeeping, nonprofits like ours have been severely impacted by the pandemic. We've had a pivot from our in-person programs at Belmont University to virtual everything. So I'll invite you to support global affairs awareness programs in this community through your gift to tnwac.org slash donate. That's tnwac.org slash donate. And don't forget to get your questions ready in the Q&A queue that should appear when you roll across the bottom of your screen. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can send in questions on Twitter at TNWAC. Let me introduce our guest for today's Global Dialogue. You can find more biographical information on our website, tnwac.org. Your moderator is Ambassador William Lors. He comes to us from Connecticut tonight. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Czechoslovakia, 1983 to 1986, and Venezuela, 78 to 82. And he has held numerous posts in Italy, Germany, the Soviet Union, and at the Department of State. Born in Springfield, Illinois, Lores received his BA from Hamilton College and his MA from Columbia University following four years in the United States Navy. Our panelists, from a perch overlooking the Hudson River in Manhattan is Dr. Gary Sick. Dr. Sick is a senior research scholar at Columbia University's Middle East Institute and an adjunct professor at the School of International and Public Affairs. He served on the National Security Council under Presidents Ford, Carter, and Reagan. He was the principal White House aide for Iran during the Iranian Revolution and the hostage crisis. Professor Sick served in the U.S. Navy with deployments in the Persian Gulf, North Africa, and the Mediterranean reaching the rank of captain. He has been the executive director of Gulf 2000, an online project on political, economic, and security developments in the Persian Gulf since 1993. 
I've been a Golf 2000 member since 1999, and I can testify to the quantity and quality of that resource. Dr. Sick is author of books on Iran and U.S. politics. Ellie Jeremiah is a senior policy fellow and deputy head of the Middle East and North Africa program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She specializes in European foreign policy in relation to Iran, particularly on the nuclear and regional dossiers and sanctions policy. Jeremiah advised European governments and companies on the nuclear negotiations between Iran and world powers from 2013 to 2015 and continues to brief senior policymakers on how to effectively safeguard the implementation of the nuclear agreement. Our research focus also covers wider regional dynamics, including post-ISIS stabilization and geopolitical trends in the Middle East. She is regularly quoted by international media outlets, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, and appears on CNN, Al Jazeera, and the BBC to provide commentary on regional developments. She graduated in law from the University of Cambridge. My interest in our topic tonight precedes my tenure at the World Affairs Council. It started in 1973 aboard the Middle East Force flagship in Bahrain, engaging in naval exercise with then Cento ally Iran and visiting ports there and elsewhere in the region. My connection to Iran extended through my service as a warship driver in the Persian Gulf during the Tanka War and later as a Navy intelligence officer in the Pentagon and at U.S. Central Command. In my post-Navy career, I launched a newsletter publishing business focused on Gulf affairs. So I am a lifelong student of the Persian Gulf and the region. And I am especially pleased to be hosting this program. Now onto our topic, Iran, U.S. maximum pressure campaign, American and European perspectives. Ambassador Lors. Thank you, Pat. Thanks a lot. Uh, I'm honored to be in your presence today. We've had uh, particularly Katya Mead, who's worked with you for four years, maybe, or, or and annually we spend send, have sent somebody down to speak at Tennessee because of our of how good you are and how important it's been to keep that relationship. Um, and I also want to say that we've established through Bill Clifford and, and you and so many heads of, of World Affairs Councils around the country, a, a type of relationship that enables us to uh, send our speakers and our colleagues uh, out to, to get to know these communities, which, I, which we, we determined to try to do more of. The Zooms that you've set up are gonna enable us to, to fulfill our obligations toward the country. Uh, I'm, I'm head of the Iran Project, which is uh, Gary is deeply involved in, and many others. And our goal is to try to uh, deal with the Iran nuclear problem, uh, prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon, and to try to find a way to keep us out of war, and maybe eventually establish the type of relationship that is civilized and diplomatic rather than military. Um, Gary, uh, I'll start with you. Um, we know from everything we read, this extreme pressure has done uh, serious damage to Iran, its economy, uh, and to uh, really its role in the region. Uh, and that damage is mounting because of the 
the, the uh, COVID-19, uh, but this is headed downhill. Uh, you have been talking and know as bed, better than anyone what this extreme pressure has done to damage U.S. national interests and U.S. policies worldwide. Uh, tell us what it's done. We know what it's done to Iran. Do we know what it's done to us? Thank you very much, Bill. Um, I And thanks to Pat for inviting me for this. <clears throat> I'm particularly pleased today to actually be hosted by Pat Ryan. Pat and I have a surprisingly parallel career tracks in the Navy and the Persian Gulf. But unlike him, I never managed to become president. So it's good to see you, Pat. <laughs> uh, and of course, it's a real pleasure and privilege to appear with Bill Lewis and Ellie Jeremiah. They're both consummate professionals. Let me just begin with a, a little bit of an overview. The relationship has been a stormy one for more than four decades. I watched the Iranian Revolution and the hostage crisis from Washington, and those events actually have shaped my life, uh, as they have so many others. I was part of the government when Jimmy Carter imposed the first sanctions on Iran, and I've watched as both Iran and the United States have confronted each other. I can attest to the repeated efforts by both sides to find a way to deal with each other without coming to blows. Did you know that every endorsement from Carter through Obama made some effort to open a relationship with Iran? Unfortunately, I've also witnessed the repeated failures for which both countries are really to blame. The relationship today is the worst I've ever seen. Let's just briefly review how we got here. President Obama, like several of his predecessors, concluded that the greatest threat to America's fundamental interests centered on the rise of China as a global power. He proposed a rebalancing, often referred to as a pivot, of U.S. forces from the Persian Gulf. To that end, he began a process of taking the Iranian nuclear program off the regional agenda. As many of you will recall, Israel and the Arab states saw Iran's nuclear program as the greatest threat to their security and to the stability of the region. If the United States was going to reduce its military footprint in the area, that was the critical problem that had to be solved first. After one of the most intensive negotiations ever conducted by the United States, Obama the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, was agreed to in 2015 between Iran and all five permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany. And it was formally ratified in international law as Resolution 2231 by the 15 members of the UN Security Council. This agreement imposed the most serious missions on a nuclear program that had ever been enacted in return for partial lifting of sanctions. If Iran fulfilled its obligations for a period of about 10 years or more, it would be given a clean slate by the Security Council, and almost all spatial limitations would be removed. However, international monitoring of Iran's nuclear activities would be continued in perpetuity. It did not come to an end. The Trump administration, from its very first days, 
denounced the agreement and refused to fulfill U.S. commitments on the grounds that it was not permanent and that it failed to deal with Iran's ballistic missile program and foreign policy actions in Syria, Lebanon, and elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, Ellie, uh, Ellie is, is a powerhouse in, in, in London and Europe. Uh, as Pat said, she's done a lot and is, is the go-to person by ministers, uh, by journalists, by academics, uh, for her insights into um, not only Europe's views of Iran, but Iran. So uh, you're, you're treated to another jewel in, in, uh, in, in Ellie. Ellie, maybe you could give a perspective from where um, uh, Gary was headed on the subject of, of what's happened and, and the damage that U.S. policies have done with regard to Europe and, and the Middle East. Sure, thank you very much, uh, Bill and Pat, uh, to the ARM project. Um, and thank you, Gary, for those opening comments. Um, good afternoon to everyone who's joined the call. And as uh, Pat mentioned, I'm dialing in from London, where I've been watching transatlantic relations on Iran uh, for over seven years now the highs and the lows. And I can vouch that we are pretty much at a low in transatlantic relations when it comes to Iran policy. And as Gary mentioned, part of the byproduct of the US maximum pressure campaign has been a real damage to the relationship with allies in Europe. I wanna make a couple of comments on the European viewpoint on the maximum pressure campaign and also look at how this is playing out inside Iran and what we may expect going forward. So on the European side, I think that this Iran issue was one of the very rare circumstances where the heads of government in France, Germany, and the United Kingdom came together consistently and reached out directly to President Trump before his decision to withdraw from the nuclear deal to essentially warn him of the damage that may uh, be around the corner if, if this step was taken. And I think that what we've seen play out in Iran-US relations over the past year has really been um, the, the, the kind of what some of the worst predictions that Europeans had um, of what may ensue from a US um, exit really coming to life. And one of the biggest worries that um, there was in capitals in Europe and there continues to be is that the US decided to withdraw on a key uh, international achievement, diplomatic achievement on the nuclear deal without a backup plan. And as we've seen, Iran has continued to expand its nuclear program. It has not come back to the negotiating table as the US claimed it would under the maximum pressure campaign. And we're in a situation where really um, the Europeans are, are left manning the ship, trying to keep some of the main uh, pillars of the nuclear agreement in place uh, while the US continues to try and sabotage it. And the latest attempt we've seen um, is that the United States uh, may try, in fact, at the UN Security Council in the coming weeks and months ahead uh, to claim that they are now, in fact, part of the agreement after all, and have the ability to snap back United Nations sanctions. 
And this really, uh, th this sort of a move from the United States is not only damaging um, to the nuclear deal, but it really is putting under question the UN Security Council framework. And I think if we end up getting to that stage, we will see very difficult, even more difficult uh, political clashes between um, the European countries and the United States going forward. And another reason why this whole episode has been so damaging um, for the transatlantic relations is that as Gary mentioned, it's, it's not so much sanctioning Iran, but sanctioning really European companies and the threats that, uh, that's been ensued to European companies of you need to pick between the US market or the Iranian market. And this whole episode has been a real wake up call in, in Europe uh, about the limitations to its own economic sovereignty. And I think for the first time in the last year, we're, we're in this uncharted waters where European governments are actively thinking about how they can set up their own um, different financial architecture to the United States uh, dollar dominated one. And I think this may have very um, difficult and damaging um, implications for US-Europe um, relations going forward, particularly given that they have in the past been so well coordinated on financial frameworks and sanctions policy. Um, going forward, I do think that the Europeans are still, despite this, this, this bad, turbulent episode, they are quite keen to get the band back together. And the, the, they're really closely watching how the November elections in the US play out. If we have a second Trump term, um, the, the job of the Europeans, I think, will continue to be damage limitation, uh, trying to essentially put out the fires that either Tehran sets or the United States um, sets, whether it's in the Middle East or on the nuclear deal. But I think it's going to be very hard for the Europeans to keep the nuclear agreement architecture in place if we continue to have this zero-sum mentality from the Trump administration going forward. If we're dealing with a, a Democrat in the White House after November, I do think that there will be quite a wide political op opening for European governments to work with Washington on somehow bringing order to, to the chaos that we're seeing play out, both on the nuclear issue and on the regional landscape. Now, a couple of uh, quick remarks on, on the issue of, of what's happening in Tehran. The first trend that I've seen in the last uh, few years under this maximum pressure campaign has been really that the centers of power in Iran are shifting from those who've, who've really pushed for the diplomatic um, efforts to get this nuclear deal done with the United States under the Obama administration. They've been left empty handed. And I think their appetite to stick their neck out again uh, on, on pushing the, the centers of power in Iran to make concessions in the future is much more limited than before. And instead what we're seeing is that the confrontational, um, the confrontational centers of power inside of the country are on the rise. So compare, for example, Iraq. In, in 2015, during the nuclear talks and after the deal was, was signed, we had a case where implicitly the, the US and the Iranian forces were coordinating through the central government in Baghdad 
on the counter ISIS mission. Um, there was a common enemy and they were pushing back um, ISIS forces. Today we have a scenario where after the assassination of Iran's um, top general Qasem Soleimani, um, Iran has carried out open and public missile launches against US um, bases inside Iraq. And this is really a troubling trend. Moreover, um, the, the, the forces inside Iran that have always pushed for a more closed door economy of resilience and resistance um, are, are really now on, on, the winning, um, on the winning agenda. Um, they're not willing to come cap in hand to the United States to negotiate for sanctions relief. And instead they're arguing that boosting domestic production and looking more inwards within their region, uh, inside of Iran's immediate neighborhood, is really the way to go rather than looking at Western governments to lift sanctions. I do think that the door is still left open for diplomacy, but not at any cost or exclusively under US terms. And going forward, whether we have Biden or Trump in the White House, I do think there will have to be some serious calculations done in Washington about whether the old carrot and stick methods will, will provide results in the way that um, some believed um, managed to get Obama at the nuclear deal. We're now dealing with an environment where there is a unprecedented drop in oil prices. And this means that sanctions lifting by the US doesn't have the same degree of impact on Iran's economy than prior. We're also gonna be dealing with a very uncertain post COVID-19 global economic order, which means that for example, Iran's uh, partners in the East, um, Asian economies that used to buy a lot of its oil or invest heavily in its economy uh, may not even enter the Iranian market in the same way once sanctions are lifted. And so what I think we're, we're gonna see is that actually the bar is gonna be set much higher in Tehran for negotiations going forward. Again, whether that's under Trump or under Biden White House. Look forward to the questions and thank you very Good. much. Thanks, Ellie. Uh, Gary, are you, are you willing to re return? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, I hope uh, this uh, is the sound coming through. Loud and clear. Because I, I changed, I've got three different possible microphones and each one of them always seems to go wrong at the wrong moment. So uh, anyway, if, if it stops have working, let me know. Uh, yeah, Gary, would it be possible for you to explain briefly what the extreme pressure means? What, what is it so the people who we all who deal with it know, but what is extreme pressure turned out to be? Well, basically it, it has, it's the effect of a sort of international blockade against Iran is what it really amounts to. And Iran can neither sell nor buy most of the things that it was selling and buying outside, the, outside its own area. Plus Iran as an oil producer was selling oil worldwide and it was accumulating uh, reserves in banks where they paid them in, in euros or dollars or whatever it may be. And the US has basically imposed a, a, a law because if you are a bank and you've got Iranian money in your bank, 
you cannot send it to Iran without, in fact, invoking our uh, basically enormous fines or problems. So it has basically separated Iran from all of its reserves. It has prevented any kind of transaction internationally. It's interesting, and that's worth mentioning, that inside Iran, its own economy is booming. It's booming because they have to now do everything for themselves. And in one respect, Iran has actually gained from this experience because for the last 40 years, it has been starved and, and, and basically under enormous financial and economic pressure. As has, has, Gary, has the relationship, uh, the alliance between the uh, Gulf states and Israel, uh, Israel promoted by the United States, uh, focused uh, on Iran as both a military and political uh, problem. Uh, is that, would you consider that part of the extreme pressure? Actually, Iran has been under pressure from uh, even its uh, so-called allies from time to time. I mean, the, Russia has not treated Iran well. Uh, during this time. China certainly has not come to Iran's rescue. Uh, Iran is basically an international pariah. And so in, in that sense, it has been isolated, cut off from the rest of the world. And, but it is interesting that they are making a lot of their own military equipment, which isn't true of any of the other countries in the Gulf. They are, and they're also willing now to take risks. I mean, they see this as something that they've gotten used to over a very long period of time. It hurts them enormously. Their economy is stuttering and is they, their handling of the coronavirus was terrible. I mean, it was, it was clumsy and slow and, and, and inept. But the reality is they continue to function. They have not come to the United States and said, all right, we're ready to negotiate and take whatever deal you will give us. They are not collapsing. They're not falling apart. So for better or worse, what we're ending up with as a result of our pressure campaign is a, an Iran that is angry, that is certainly starved in many, many ways of a lot of the things that they would do under normal circumstances, and which is basically going into a takeover by the uh, hardliners who are our worst enemies in, in Iran. So that is the, the, what we have produced as a result of our, our uh, extreme pressure is a set of outcomes that I think is not what we intended and it's not advantageous to the United States in terms of its own national interest. We, can we go to another point, Gary? Um, you know, I, I, I understand that um, some people believe that we're on the verge of some sort of military conflict with Iran, uh, the combination of their significant upgrade of their missile systems as demonstrated by their attacks on Saudi Arabia in last September, um, as a result of the US assassination of, of the head of the uh, Quds Force, who was an official of the, US, of the Iranian government, and general exchanges uh, in Iraq and tensions in Iraq Give us the dimensions of whether you, what you think are the likelihood of, of a broader military conflict involving the U.S. and Iran over the next several months. 
Well, there is there's a good news and bad news uh, in this. Uh, the the good news is that the United States, since uh, actually since Pat and I were out in the Persian Gulf, have dealt with Iran in a variety of different ways, uh, in their navy, in the military, and the like. And for the most part, with the exception of that period during the Iran-Iraq War, we have done so without major clashes. Um, and so, and I think the good news is that from a political point of view, the United States really doesn't want another war in the Middle East, and the Iranians certainly do not want a war, a direct fight with the United States. So each side is treading rather gingerly to try to avoid what could be the worst. The bad news is that that is a very tricky business, and that one mistake, any place along the line, can result in an escalation that gets out of control. And I, that is what I think we have to worry about. And that can happen very quickly. And what is our capacity to de-escalate should, should a conflict emerge? No, we don't have, we do, we, we've actually removed most of our capacity to uh, deal with a de-escalation. What we should have is a, a, a hotline that, where we can talk back and forth to each other, where we can compare notes, where we can de-escalate. And we don't have that. We don't even have, at, at the moment, anybody on hand who could rush to Iran and carry our water for us if, the, if that moment should come, and vice versa with Iran. At the end of the negotiation of the JCPOA, we had a situation in which the Secretary of State of the United States had the home uh, phone number, the cell phone number, uh, and personal email address of all Iran. Uh, when a problem came up and there were problems, they could actually get in touch with each other instantly uh, and work the problem out. We have none of that today. That's all been thrown out. And I, it's one of the costs that we've done. The JCPOA was far from a perfect arrangement. Everybody understands that. It had its limitations. But it also had some remarkably good things in it. And we have thrown away the good things and kept really That's the part that bothers me most about where we are today. Elliot, to change again, um, on, on the issue of Iran needing to import medicines and medical equipment and protective equipment, which they really need badly now and can't get from uh, other countries because of the description you've made about the limitations on any trade with Iran. The United States has in its law a provision that humanitarian um, relief is is excluded from um, from sanctions. You can't sanction somebody so that they can't buy medicines. Tell about that as a problem a little bit from what your perspective? Sure, Bill. Well, essentially, this has been a problem even prior to this pandemic outbreak, but the COVID-19 has really sharpened minds on this issue. And, and, and the problem was, was with a couple of things. First of all, the definition of humanitarian trade um, is, is limited in scope and at times quite unclear 
um, for banks and commercial players who are looking to trade with Iran. Um, so, for example, some of the items um, that Iran was in urgent need of at the earlier days of the outbreak, um, there was uncertainty whether humanitarian trade uh, exemptions actually covered this. This included things, for example, equipment, medical equipment that were specialized uh, for the treatment of patients. Um, there has been some small steps by the US Treasury to try and address this issue after mounting international pressure and quite extensive media coverage. Um, but still, um, th th one of the bigger problems um, continues, and that's essentially what, what Gary was saying, Iran's access to global financial platforms has been extremely limited. So there are now a very limited number of banks across the world that are willing to touch business with Iran out of fear that if they do any business, even if it's exempt, they would expose themselves to pressure from the US Treasury to open their books up uh, for oversight. And this is something that, that most banks are allergic to. Um, and secondly, even if you find a bank that's willing, Iran now has a, a real problem with access to capital, to funds to actually pay for these goods. Even though it has money abroad um, from the sale of oil previously, um, this money is frozen because of US sanctions measures. And this means that uh, even to access it, full payment of humanitarian goods, which are exempt, it, it's incredibly burdensome, it takes a long time, um, and it's really been insufficient to respond um, to an urgent pandemic. And so these are the sorts of problems um, that really came to light um, across um, the last few weeks. And in fact, as far as we know, despite the rhetoric out of the Treasury Department in Washington, there's still been little or no opportunity for Iran to buy their equip equipment and medicines that they need for uh, to combat the, the virus. And, and it's a problem for the world uh, when countries can't have the capacity to, to combat this virus because we all suffer the borders. Uh, Pat, I think I, I told you our phase would be completed about 5.40 so you could get your audience in. So We, we do have a few questions, uh, Ambassador. Thanks for uh, uh, moderating and uh, posing the questions uh, to our terrific panelists. Uh, we have uh, a couple of questions on the, the same theme here, but I'll, I think it's best summarized in a question from uh, Marty Ryan. Uh, he asked, do you think a new U.S. president could re-engage in the JCPOA and reverse the damage uh, that President Trump has done? Uh, Gary, do you want to take yeah. that one? Uh, I think it's going to be, I, I don't think we're going to just be able to announce one day, we're back in the JCPOA and that's it. And everything goes on as before. Uh, it clearly is not going to work that way. Uh, Iran is going to you know, ask a very much higher price. I think having mentioned this, there's no way that they will, having taken this amount of punishment, trying to remain in the JCPOA, that they would just sort of say, well, never mind, let's just forget all of that in the past and go back to where we were. They're going to want 
more than what they got the first time around. And that's going to be extremely difficult for any American administration, Democrat, Republican, now or any other time. The other thing is that it's entirely possible that there will be no JCPOA by the time we get to uh, November uh, or eight, uh, January of next year. Uh, the Iranians certainly have talked about you know, uh, doing away with all of their responsibilities uh, because they're the only ones that are actually doing what they said they would do. And they're, of course, backing away from it slowly. So this is going to be a, a tricky issue. I do think there are things that the United States could do. My own recommendation would be something along the order of when we come to this point that the United States, since basically it's really our it, the U.S. just announced that we're going to keep all of our uh, sanctions as far as the U.S. sanctions are concerned, but we're going to do away with all the sanctions that are really on our friends and allies. Uh, that also is probably harder to do than it sounds, but that would go an enormous distance to open up a relationship with Iran, both showing that we were prepared to op do something with them. It would give you some protection with regard to the politics in the United States where Iran is terribly unpopular. And from the Iranian point of view, that was what they were looking for in the first place. They weren't really in the JCPOA trying to get the United States to lift all of its own sanctions. They were trying to get the United States to stop interfering with everybody else. And if we offered even a part of that, or even a staged version of that, I think there's a real chance that we would have something to offer that the Iranians would would find extremely interesting, and it could, in time, get us back into operation. Ellie, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to um, just jump also on that question, if I may, from a European angle. So from the European side, the cleanest way of, of moving forward, if we are to have uh, a Democrat, especially given Joe Biden's um, term with Obama, uh, fighting to get this deal through Congress and implement it. Um, the cleanest way from the European side would be for the US to come back into full compliance with the nuclear deal and for Iran to do the same on the understanding that both sides have a lot more talking to do. Um, as Gary said, the, there were imperfections of this nuclear deal for both sides. Uh, Iran wanted access, for example, um, to, to the U-turn in dollar transactions, which were really impeding its ability to actually fully um, gain access to the international financial networks. And the US similarly has uh, areas um, that it wants extensions on, for example, in terms of timelines in the nuclear deal. And I do think that you know, Biden will have a, a certain number of months of a honeymoon period um, with Congress um, to, to move this forward. And the nuclear deal has become such a sore point in transatlantic relations um, that it would go a long way um, to actually find a way back to this path, even if returning to the JCPOA and easing sanctions on Iran are conditioned on further talks continuing going forward. Ellie, let me uh, follow with uh, a question from Frank Rettenberg. Uh, he asks, uh, about the maximum pressure campaign and what the intended results were, and specifically uh, what the uh, intent is of the Trump administration. 
and uh, that uh, there doesn't seem to be any move towards achieving uh, what was aimed for. Uh, specifically, I, I know that we had the uh, 12 demands from Secretary Pompeo. What, what is the uh, interpretation in Europe of what the United States is, is actually trying to achieve? Is it regime change or something short of that? Well, Pat, I can say after almost four years, um, folks here are still scratching their head trying to work out the answer to that question. And it partially depends on which member of the US administration you talk to. Um, so the, the interpretation in Europe was that when, for example, John Bolton was brought in into the administration and the quote unquote moderates in the system were pushed aside, um, that the US may have really been after some sort of a regime change policy, particularly given Bolton's um, real uh, endless efforts in, in this line of work. Um, now, with Secretary of State Pompeo, um, it, it's not quite clear um, whether that's the extreme level that, that he's after, but it's certainly, I think, the sense in Europe um, that Pompeo isn't really after diplomacy with Iran. Um, for example, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron last year really made an extensive push directly with President Trump uh, to try and find some sort of a ladder uh, a face-saving ladder for both Washington and Tehran to come to some sort of a negotiation track. And to be fair, the, the French had some degree of success when they were talking directly to the president. And the sentiment here is that President Trump is actually part of the moderates now in the system who really does want some sort of a diplomatic track. But the men of advisors around him are, are blocking that path um, and, and really turning down the trial balloons that um, Europe or even um, the Japanese Prime Minister or, or the Imanis, for example, have been trying to extend on, the, on, this, on this playing field. Well, we, uh, we have another question that, that relates to that. One of the uh, issues in the demands uh, has been the, uh, the case for operations abroad and support uh, for uh, militias and so forth. Uh, we have a, a question from Mark Katz, who uh, uh, identifies a report that was released today that Iran is uh, under such pressure from sanctions and uh, the COVID that uh, it is considering cutting back on its involvement in Syria. Uh, there's a report that he cites from uh, Haaretz uh, today. And the, the question is, uh, is it credible or just wishful thinking uh, that Iran with, uh, would pull back from its uh, support uh, to the Assad regime? If I could take that on, uh, I saw that report. Uh, I actually chose not to put that report on my Gulf 2000 system today because basically every military in the world is consolidating, uh, moving their troops closer to home uh, because of the COVID uh, threat, because of the pandemic. And so the kind of consolidation that Iran is doing in Syria can be explained that way. That may not be the whole explanation. And it may turn out that in fact, Iran is beginning to pull back in some respects. But at this point, I think it would be a mistake to draw the conclusion that Iran is uh, about to give up on Syria and is going to come home. I will be surprised if that's the case. They've invested such an enormous amount in Syria, but it is expensive for them to stay there and they are having problems at home. They're also having problems like every other military, including the US military, 
uh, which is consolidating its forces on a few uh, spots in Iraq rather than having them spread all over. And the same thing is true in Afghanistan. So I think it's premature. Uh, I will be happy to believe it when it happens, but I don't think we have enough information at this point to draw that conclusion. Ellie, I have a question from Campbell Lehman, who is a student here in Middle Tennessee. She's in our Academic WorldQuest program and is uh, tremendously interested in global affairs. Uh, she asks, why hasn't Russia or China tried to help more uh, to uh, provide support to Iran after the U.S. started the maximum pressure campaign? Good question. Um, so I, I do think that um, particularly the, the camps inside Iran that have always been looking for this strategic relationship uh, with Russia and China have been uh, somewhat disappointed at the degree to which Russia and China were, were willing to essentially stick their neck out um, to, to protect Iran or to offer them an economic lifeline uh, when their own commercial uh, interests were at stake um, by US unilateral sanctions. Um, for all of the, the chest pumping, chest pumping that China did on, on, for example, rejecting U.S. unilateral sanctions, looking at economic uh, data for the last few years, you're seeing a, a steady decline in trade between the two countries and a restriction of banking facilities being provided by China um, to, to Iran. So, you know, the, the, that relationship, I think there is, um, on the economic side, there's a lot of questions. But I would say that Russia and China also have an important security dimension um, when it comes to Iran, um, given their role at the UN Security Council in terms of offering protection uh, through their veto power to Iran. And we may well see that playing out on the question of whether the UN arms embargoes should be extended or not. And this is a fight that the US is bringing to the UN Security Council. And uh, we were just talking about Syria. In places like Syria, while Russia and Iran have their fair share of competition, uh, it's, it's you know, no doubt that Russia's involvement in Syria has strengthened and cemented um, Iran's position um, in that conflict. So it goes beyond the economic dimension, um, although I do think that Iran has been somewhat disappointed at, at how far economically these two Eastern powers were willing to go when it came to U.S. sanctions. Terrific question. Thanks for that. Uh, we have a question from John Duke Anthony. He's uh, president of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. Uh, he asked, Gary, uh, what uh, about the intra-GCC rift? Does that make any difference in uh, how these issues play out? Um, there's a lot of different ways you could look at it. I'm glad to hear from you, John. I don't have a chance to talk to you very often. Um, the, I, I think the GCC is breaking down. Uh, so basically, the UAE in particular with Saudi Arabia and uh, has separated from Qatar. Qatar has been forced to rely more on Iran than it did in the past because of that. Uh, basically, if an airplane wants to take off from Qatar, the only way it can get out of the country now is to fly up the tip of the peninsula and into Iranian airspace in order to escape the crackdown, the boycott by, uh, by Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, so these two, but the UAE is also showing 
really interesting signs of being very pragmatic about the way it approaches the Iranian situation. They have sent delegations to Iran, uh, not to talk high politics, but to talk sort of the, the sort of nuts and bolts of, of uh, protecting shipping in the Gulf and, and, and watching out. So, but on the other hand, uh, the UAE is, is not backing. They backed away from the, uh, from the war in Yemen, which puts them in a slightly different category. So the, the UAE and, and, the, and the Saudis are developing a certain amount of space between them, but both of those powers are developing a lot of space with, with Qatar, which uh, is uh, playing its own game at this point. And Oman, where they've just lost the new Sultan, where they've just lost Sultan Qaboos and had him replaced by Sultan Haitham, uh, is in terrible economic circumstances and is going to be looking for help wherever it can. Uh, they have been the lifeline between the Arabs and Iran. They have been the one power that was willing to talk. Whether that will remain true in the current circumstances where Oman is, is facing really desperate economic circumstances remains to be seen. So it's a very complicated question. Uh, I do think that if the United States were willing to take the lead and basically provide an opening or itself uh, offer to uh, push the idea of talks of some kind of a general regional discussion, that's not an impossibility at all. But without the United States, or rather with the United States opposing any such action, it's very difficult for me to see how there's going to be much of an opening between the Arabs and Iran over the, the immediate uh, in the immediate term. Uh, again, after November, after January, it's conceivable that a new political situation would exist in the United States. And there are plenty of people prepared to act as a good broker uh, between the Iranians and the uh, Arabs. But uh, we took ourselves out of that game and it's gonna be very hard for us to get back in. But we could at least stand back and let others do it. And I personally would think that would be a very helpful thing to do. Ellie, I've got a question for you. Did, did you want to add any comments to uh, the question about the GCC? Let's, let's, uh, I think Gary did a great okay. job. Great. This comes from uh, Bill Clifford. He's president of the World Affairs Councils of America, a tip of the hat to uh, that organization that uh, runs our network of World Affairs Councils. Gary, an another president, we're, we're filled with presidents today. Um, his, his question, uh, Ellie, is uh, does the EU trade mechanism, INSTEX, uh, first used this spring to export medical equipment to Iran in response to COVID have future promise despite the Trump administration's criticism of it? Well, Bill, the, the Europeans um, are still working behind the scenes on a pipeline of transactions um, to process through insects. Um, actually, I would say that despite the criticisms um, coming from the Trump administration, they've been fairly quiet um, after the first transaction was announced uh, a few weeks ago. And this is because uh, the, the scope of insects has really shrank down from its um, original uh, ideas of really allowing for oil to trade, Iran's oil exports to trade through this mechanism, to becoming a, a instrument that is, for now, and 
most likely for the foreseeable future, very much in compliance with US sanctions framework because the scope has really for now been limited to addressing the, the core demands and needs of the Iranian population on the humanitarian trade front. Now, I do think INSTEX will be quite important in the, in the, in the COVID-19 response that Iran um, needs to now import medical equipment and medical goods. Uh, it may also be extremely important uh, further down the line um, towards the beginning of next year where the global food chain supply is likely to be disrupted and many countries are now gearing up for that and Iran's ability to import um, food stuff may have to um, look at other creative mechanisms like Instex. The, there are still problems though with running Instex. Um, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier and that's the ability of Iran to pay for the goods that are coming through Instex. And because its access to its foreign reserves are, are so limited and because it can't really pay through its own central bank inside Iran for these goods. Um, there are many, many different loopholes uh, that people have to jump through to be able to make this framework work and be completely um, diligent um, in, in the various different regulations that it has to comply with. So the long answer to your question is that their, their insects will most likely make um, several more transactions, but they will not fall foul of U.S. sanctions, and therefore I don't foresee um, the U.S. administration making attempts to shoot it down, particularly in, in the backdrop of this um, humanitarian uh, COVID-19 outbreak. Well, we're coming up on uh, an hour. We have a few more questions here. Uh, Gary, you might want to start with this one. Um, in the business of prognostication, uh, the question from Morad Hosbawi is, it is not secret that Ayatollah Khamenei's health is deteriorating because of old age and sickness. Who do you think will be the next supreme leader and with whom will the U.S. or can the U.S. and Europe work with to de-escalate the tension in the region? Um, this is a perennial question and it's an important question. Um, I admit to a certain bias on this subject. I actually happen to be older than Khamenei. And so uh, to me, the idea that he's about ready to kick off is always discouraging to, to hear. Um, but the reality is that he, he uh, has some uh, ailments that I don't have. So maybe he's ahead of me on that score. In any event, uh, the, there is going to be a change of leadership in Iran uh, within the next five to 10 years, uh, almost regardless of what happens. Uh, the picking the name, I, I think a lot of people think they have a name, uh, Mr. Raif, uh, uh, Raisi. Uh, but I think what has happened is that the United States with its maximum pressure campaign has in fact affected that outcome uh, and actually skewed it in a particular way. And what we've done is we've, in effect, because of our pressure and because of the animus that has now evolved, the hardliners have taken over. They now have more than 80% of the seats in the majlis, the, the uh, parliament, and they are going to be in charge of uh, the whole uh, Tehran complex. Uh, they have basically taken over and they're doing that and we've, we've encouraged them to do that, actually, in reaction to our behavior. The, with them coming in that way, that means that they have all of the instruments at hand 
to get a hardliner in, uh, in terms of uh, replacement for Khomeini. Previously, people could talk at least with a degree of hopefulness about maybe Rouhani could be uh, the, uh, he is a, a well-respected uh, you know, cleric as well as his political background. He fits the description beautifully and would have been an interesting candidate. Today, with the United States having pulled the rug out from under him, uh, showed him to be a, you know, incompetent leader because he couldn't produce on what he said he would do. And then in effect, encouraging the hardliners to rise up and take over all the instruments of power, the chances of that kind of a moderate outcome uh, strike me as being extremely unlikely. But Iran always surprises us. So I don't want to uh, make any uh, clear predictions because in fact, they always manage to come up with an answer that we had not anticipated. Ellie, uh, do you want to uh, take a shot at a, a guess there? What's the, the London uh, betting parlors uh, looking at for uh, picking a winner? Um, I mean, it's it's the million dollar question, but I, I would just add to what Gary said. Um, there is a body inside Iran that has already actually started the process of, of succession discussions directly with um, Iran's current supreme leader. And my guess would be that um, Khamenei, the current supreme leader, will play a big role in deciding how the succession uh, rolls out. And he won't uh, want to leave behind a legacy of chaos um, when that time comes. And, and, and this body that's in charge, and it's a very small committee, very secretive, doesn't talk about its, its deliberations publicly. Um, they will be keeping a, a track record of how potential candidates um, are doing. And someone like Rouhani, unfortunately, because of the outcome of the nuclear deal and the US maximum pressure campaign, it, his score looks pretty poor right now. Um, but again, as, as um, Gary said, uh, th this country has a capacity to surprise us. There may well be a name in that shortlist that none of us are thinking about at the moment. Um, but I, I do think that uh, there will be an orderly rather than a chaotic succession. Uh, we have a question from Seth Emerson, and uh, he's curious about Iranian public uh, opinion, uh, as best we can determine. Uh, what do they? Uh, what What do you believe the consensus is uh, on the street in Iran on the Trump administration's handling of the JCPOA and the overall relationship? Well, I could just say one word, and that is that uh, there was there was real joy in the streets of Tehran after the JCPOA was signed. They perhaps got too excited. Uh, they expected more from the JCPOA than it ever could possibly provide. But you had people like uh, Javad Zarif who came back into town after the signing of the JCPOA and was treated like a rock star, a major parade into town, people throwing confetti. It was really something. And so, and the approval rating for that agreement was in the 80s. It was very, very high. Today, it's in the 30s, I believe. Uh, they have basically decided that uh, that was all wishful thinking, that you can't trust the Americans, and that under the circumstances of you know, we're, we're not, 
we don't have that much to gain from it. So whatever huge you know, approval ratings were there to begin with are certainly gone today. And unfortunately, like many of these things, we are in a crisis of choice that basically a lot of what's going on in Iran and a lot of the bad things that are happening in the region, particularly where it comes to the Iranian relationship, we really have, we, we have a lot to blame for ourselves uh, in the way we've behaved and what we've done. And a tremendous amount of what we've done, I would say from the European perspective, we've shot ourselves in the foot with our allies. We've reduced our, the operation of the United States as a, as a legitimate broker, as somebody who can be trusted. And we have put ourselves, and by, by basically playing petty politics, with things like the sale of medicine and the like, we have uh, created a reputation for ourselves that is far from enviable. And I, I think we will live to regret this. I really do. Well, we're, with the, the indulgence of our, uh, our terrific guests today, we'll go maybe five more minutes. Uh, we have a, a few more questions. I'd, I'd like to uh, ask a question. In January, with the uh, killing of Hassan uh, Soleimani, uh, we saw an exchange of, uh, you know, there's been a lot of bullets and bombs going back and forth, attacks at the embassy uh, by militias, and then the, uh, the launch of a dozen or so ballistic missiles into uh, a base in the northern part of Iraq where U.S. forces were based. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, provocative uh, engagements in the, uh, the Persian Gulf. Uh, President Trump has said that uh, uh, such provocations will be met with a uh, return of, of fire and uh, sinking the gunboats involved. Uh, so, you know, we, we've had a lot of ammunition going back and forth. Where are we on the state of the uh, military to military confrontation uh, for those uh, trying to keep score of uh, who shot last? Um, Emily, do you want to talk about that? Um, I'm sure I can offer some thoughts and then um, over to you, Gary, for some ideas on this. Um, look, there was absolutely no way that such a public and vocal assassination of a Iranian top general was going to go unanswered militarily. And, and that, I think, really sparked and paved the way for Iran to be much more public uh, and, and, and take ownership of actual attacks against um, US forces in a way that we've not really seen before. Um, and, you know, one of the things that um, IRGC commanders uh, were saying in the days after um, this assassination was that, you know, yes, they had their direct military response, but that there were lots of different groups that were mobilized by Ghassan Soleimani who wanted their own revenge. And let's not forget that in Iraq, um, in that same attack that killed Soleimani, uh, the, an important Iraqi um, head of um, the parliamentary forces in Iraq was, was also killed in that attack. And he has his own base, he had his own supporters that also wanted to avenge that death. So we, we're now in this incredibly thorny um, position and ambitious, I think, cycle of violence inside Iraq, where every couple of weeks there's a flashpoint uh, where where some rockets um, finally hit a hit a target. And unfortunately, in this mess, we've we've now had 
uh, European military personnel also being caught in the crossfire. Um, and that's causing a lot of concern in, in Europe, uh, which was really, you know, th there was no love lost in Europe at all uh, for Soleimani's death, but there, there was a lot of concern that the operation like Iraq and Afghanistan would, would come under jeopardy. And, and that's another area where, where there is considerable US um, presence uh, very close to Iranian um, borders. So I don't think this, this, this back and forth military um, escalation is over. I think we'll see that continue even um, near the US elections. Um, and here I do think Iran is, is sending constant reminders that the US economic sanctions will come at a direct cost for US interests as well. Well, we, uh, Gary, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I, I just want to say that I, I agree completely with, uh, with Ellie, but uh, you know, we've, had, we've got 29 American servicemen that are now getting uh, purple hearts because they were on that base that was hit by the uh, missiles. The key thing that happened with that missile attack is that for the very first time, Iran took full responsibility. Those missiles were fired not from some outside place. They were fired from Iran, and they made no bones about it. And that was because of our killing of Soleimani. So whatever you think about Soleimani, if you're going to kill somebody at that level, there should be a strategy to go with this. And I must say that looking at it, it looked like a pretty impulsive action. And, you know, Suleimani was not, a, not loved in the West and uh, is a man that had uh, led the, the troops in, in uh, Syria and the like. But if you're going to kill somebody at that level and do it in such a public way, you should have a strategy to go with it that justifies the action. We basically now have put a target on the backs of every American, that is civilian and military, that are operating in the Middle East. And you know, Iran is going to be looking for opportunities to get revenge for that. And they're willing to take really serious risks to do this. And this is what worries me most, because in their effort to make their revenge real, they are really risking setting off an escalatory cycle that could end up in a bloody war. And that this is something that I think would be the worst possible outcome to come out of all of this. But it's a very, very delicate moment. Gary, do you see any indications that uh, the United States may be uh, reassessing the, the footprint we have in the Gulf? Uh, Iran has been pressing for years for us to get out of there. Uh, and we now have uh, less reason for the energy argument to be uh, that present in the Gulf. Um, you know, we have uh, COVID on the Navy aircraft carriers and a reassessment of our forward deployments. Uh, what's what's your, your Navy thinking? Well, I, um, I disagree with an awful lot of my colleagues uh, in the sense that I think that we're going to see a gradual pulling back, that the United States has lost a lot of the reason for being there. It's extremely expensive to maintain those forces. And we now have a situation where we're trying our best to get out of Afghanistan. I think we've reduced our presence in Iraq enormously, but the Iraqis now, because of the Suleimani affair, have basically told us to get out. I don't think that's a settled matter by any means. But I do think that the combination of all of these pressures, money, deployments, and the like, are going to lead us to reduce our footprint. What are we fighting for? 
are we fighting to protect the oil sales in, in the Gulf? Well, those people desperately want to sell their oil right now. They'll sell to anybody under any circumstances. What are we protecting? And I think that question, of course, it's a bigger question than that, but my own view is that the idea that we're going to be at this level and stay this way for the foreseeable future is just uh, unthinkable. I, I think we're, we're definitely going to see some, some diminution of, of U.S. presence in the region, which I think could actually be a very healthy thing. Well, that's uh, been a tremendous uh, panel. I, I really am uh, pleased that, that you all have joined us today. Thanks to uh, Bill, Gary, and Ellie uh, for sharing your insights and perspectives. Uh, I hope our audience um, enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, any last thoughts? Uh, we'll go around the, the table here. Ellie, uh, would you like to make a comment on, the, uh, on this topic as we close? Um. Just to say that I am an optimist, um, you know, through and through, and I and I do hope um, that whatever happens in the U.S. elections in November, that some sort of a political opening um, can uh, really come out of the fact that we've had the experience now of four years of really relentless maximum pressure, uh, which hasn't really furthered U.S. interests nor European interests, and I do think that there needs to be a real shift in strategy um, from the White House moving forward. And, and this precedent will be a blueprint of, of things not to do going forward. Gary? Um, very briefly, I, the, uh, I'm an optimist like Ellie, uh, uh, maybe not quite as optimistic. Uh, I agree that we need a change of policy and that this has been true for a long time. Obama tried to get that started and it didn't, and it was, didn't get carried through. I will offer one note of caution that really worries me a great deal. I was in the White House during the, the end of the Carter administration between the election when he lost uh, overwhelmingly to Reagan and before Reagan took uh, the presidency in, in January. And during that two month period, Carter, basically negotiated the release of the American hostages in Tehran. Uh, that was an extraordinary piece of work and uh, was sort of an around the clock thing. But it makes me realize that a president between November and January can actually do quite a lot and they're still there and in power. So let's assume that we have a democratic uh, president elected in, in November. What happens in that two months between November and January 21st when he actually takes office. Uh, I'm really worried about that. And I think it's something that Americans should be worried about. Um, and maybe nothing will happen. Uh, that's usually what happens. I'm afraid in this case, that might not be the case. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Ambassador Lores, any uh, closing comments, thoughts uh, about the uh, panel tonight? Well, the the two panelists were just outstanding as, as one expected. Uh, and I agreed with most of what they said. I just think one point has to be made. The Trump administration is claiming, particularly Pompeo, that since Iran is on the verge of collapse, whether it's for regime change or actually unraveling of the system, uh, we should keep pressure up on Iran and um, uh, 
not help in the, in the virus in the, with the COVID-19, uh, that our approach should be to continue to press and that we'll, we're, we're almost to the end of this regime. Um, this is wrong. Uh, everything we know about Iran now is that although they're hurting badly, when they're hurting, they come together. We know that after the, during the Iraq-Iran war, they united behind a government that they didn't like. Now, whatever the problems are with this government, this is a more united nation, more united Iran than we've seen for a long time. And secondly, as Gary pointed out, they peculiarly are less dependent on oil than all the other Gulf states. And uh, they're working out their own economy. And the final thing is that whatever you say about this government, one that you think you know is that they want to stay in power and they will find a way to stay in power. And uh, they won't be overthrown by, the, uh, uh, by this vast population. So forget it, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, about thinking that Iran is going to go, the Iran government is going to go away. It's not going to happen. Terrific. Well, this 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 has been a great panel. I, I thank everyone, uh, especially Ellie. It's uh, late at night in London. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Gary. Um, I'm glad we uh, got to talk with you. And uh, Ambassador Lors, uh, thanks again. Uh, and thank you all for attending this special program that has been part of the C by C uh, Amplified Summit, and thanks to the organizers at the World Affairs Councils of America office in Washington, Bill, Liz, and Rachel, and the Connecticut World Affairs Council, Megan and Amanda. Remember to check the program guide at ccamplified.com. There are more terrific programs ahead in the next couple of days. For the World Affairs Council members and Tennessee friends, please check our website for more programs to keep you connected to the world. We welcome your comments at info at tnwac.org. And we look forward to all our new friends visiting Music City sometime in the future when we all get back to a new normal and all the honky tonks on Broadway are, are open for your enjoyment. Uh, thanks again and good night from Nashville, Tennessee. Be safe out there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.